Habakkuk chapter 3, please. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you today that we can join together in this place. Thank you, Father God, for your word. We thank you that, Lord, you gave unto us this inspired book that we might, Father God, from it learn of you, learn about uh, how glorious you are, that we might learn about how sinful we are we want to understand that there is a Saviour who died for us. And we do pray that, Lord, you guide our time in your word this morning. Give me wisdom, I pray, from on high. May I say only that which is truth. And may you receive the praise and the glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. After hearing the promise and warnings of chapter 1 and chapter 2 in Habakkuk, Habakkuk concludes his book with prayer and praise. He recalls all God has done and prays for a speedy deliverance for the nation of Judah. And he expresses confidence in God and he lays his trust in him. And that's all that you and I can do in the midst of troubled times. You and I can, all we can do is trust God, keep praying and keep praising the Lord. And know with me, this morning then, as Habakkuk comes before the Lord in thanksgiving and praise, as he looks to God's speedy deliverance, first of all, the prayer for the work of God. The prayer in verse 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk, prophet upon Sigioth, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make known. In wrath, remember mercy. This prayer was designed for public worship. This was not a private prayer that Habakkuk was praying here. This was something that was written with the intent that this would be uh, prayed and would be indeed sung in public worship. It's seen in the description. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet upon uh, Siganoth, or however you want to pronounce that, and uh, that word simply means tune, or variable tunes. It, it's, a, it's a musical notation about this prayer that Habakkuk is now giving us. It indicates the type of rhythm, rhythm that this ode was to use in order to have it in public worship. It was to be sung to a certain melody, and in this instance, it was sung as a song of triumph. And so this was a musical notation. Now, you don't put musical notations in your private prayers. This was intended for public worship. This was how this was to be sung. We also see that it was intended for public worship by the musical notation that occurs throughout, the psalm, uh, throughout this psalm also, uh, which is the word selah. In verse 3, God came from Timah, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. 
and in verse 9. Thy bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes, even thy word, Selah. And in verse 13, thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation upon the neck, Selah. Now the word Selah is simply a musical term which means rest. And so at the end of each of these times of singing, there was to be a rest. There was to be sort of phrasing in the song, okay? And if you look at music today, we have times whereby there's rest, where, where the, the notation gives you music notes, and then there's a rest. It may be for a beat or for a bar or whatever it might be, but there's a rest. Well, that was the case here. So this was a public psalm. That, uh, this was a psalm, rather, that was sung publicly to a certain melody which was a tune that was given, identified here in verse 1, and indeed we're told when we're to rest in this song, what parts we are to sing and then rest them. Now, we don't know what the tune was, and uh, you and I probably couldn't sing the Hebrew anyway, even if we wanted to, but uh, this is a public prayer, a public song, and uh, the chapter is entitled A Prayer. Here in verse 1, it was a prayer that was to be sung. Uh, we don't do that today. I, I don't know that anyone's actually uh, written too many prayers that are songs. So, uh, but the Jews obviously did this as public part of their public worship. In chapter one, Habakkuk bears his soul. Remember, he asks the question, "How long, Lord? How long will you let the wickedness go on in Judah? How long, Lord, will you uh, let the righteous uh, be suffer? How long will you allow the unrighteous to?" gain advantage how long that was his question he couldn't understand the patience of god with the nation that was so wicked in chapter two he gets his answer not necessarily the answer he wanted but chapter two he gets his answer god tells him that god's going to judge the nation with an even far wickeder nation the nation of uh, of babylon is going to come and judge judah they're going to go into captivity and that led to another question from habakkuk wanted to know how come how could you do that, Lord? How could you use a more wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation? And then God explains that to him in chapter 2. Now full of awe and full of terror, he cries out to God in verse 2. He says, O oh Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. That word afraid is terror or awe. I've heard what you've said, Lord. And as I stand before you, I'm in awe of you. I stand before you in terror. I, I stand before you as a man who understands his limitations before a holy God. O oh Lord, I've heard thy speech and was afraid. O oh Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. He cries out that God would revive his work. He prays for revival. He has noted the wickedness of his people. He has noted the judgment of God. He's realized how wicked the people are, that God's going to have to use a more wicked nation to judge them. He stands in awe of a holy God, and he says, Lord, revive thy work. Revive the work of God. He knows how God once worked with the nation of Israel. He knows how the people once responded to the work of God. When God delivered them from Egypt, when God delivered them through the wilderness, when God led them into the promised land, 
when God delivered them at Jericho and Ai and the other nations that they came up against, other cities they came against, he knew how the people responded in faith at times. And Habakkuk wanted to see this again. He wanted to see the nation of Judah come before a holy God to bow their knee before him in, uh, in uh, repentance and asking for forgiveness and that God would once again revive the nation and they would go forth as a powerful example and witness of a holy God. And he wanted to see it again. And you know, beloved, that ought to be our prayer. We ought to pray that God would revive his work, that God would turn men's hearts to him. I mean, you know, we could to, to pray for revival is not a bad thing to pray for. That we'd see our, the churches of our land revived. We'd see interest in spiritual things revived. We'd see our nation revived. We'd see our political leaders revived. We'd see them saved. And what a difference it would make to a nation if God would send a revival. And of all the prayers we pray, praying for revival is not a bad thing that we could do. If we followed Habakkuk's example and we prayed, Lord, revive thy work. You know, the prayer of Habakkuk shows us that revival is a work of God, not the achievement of man, because he says, O Lord, revive thy work. Lord, this is your work. If, if, if revival is going to come, this is something that you've got to do in the hearts of mankind. This is something that you've got to bring to pass. It's not something that we can achieve ourselves. It's not something we can stir up ourselves. This is the work of God. This is what God does in the hearts of people. This is the work of the Lord. Lord, revive thy work. And we should cry out to God and plead for his reviving work starting in our hearts. You know, revival ought to be the norm for the believer. You and I every day ought to be revived. Every day you and I ought to be re re revitalized by Almighty God, by the Word of God, by fellowship with the Lord. There ought to be revival in our hearts every day and we ought to be seeking the will of God. We ought to plead for His reviving work. At the same time, when we pray for revival, we must remember that it has to be a personal prayer. Not only should it be, Lord, revive thy work, but we need to say, Lord, revive me. You know, it's too easy for, for us to blame the state of our nation and the state of the church uh, uh, today, uh, uh, rather say the nation to be the blame of the church or to blame the church for sin and corruption and laziness and prayerlessness and lack of spiritual power or whatever we want to lay the blame at. But in so doing, we need to not forget that we are the church. Yeah, individuals of the church. If the church is to blame for the state of the nation, then we as individuals have some responsibility to bear for that. Because we are the church. It's our responsibility as individuals to pray for personal revival to diligently ask God to search our hearts. Go with me to Psalm 139 and look what the psalmist said. Psalm 139. 
and verse 23 and 24. He says, search me, O God, and know my thoughts. Try me and uh, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This ought to be our prayer. We ought to pray daily, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked man in me and lead me, Lord, in the way everlasting. We ought to ask God to search us. If we want to see our nation revived, if we want to see souls saved, if we want to see people turn from darkness to righteousness, from darkness to light, and we want to see people truly come to know the Savior, then it starts with us as individuals. We need God to search us, to try us, to uh, make you, you and I walk in the way everlasting that we might bring glory to God. You and I need to check out our conduct. We need to ask ourselves the question, does our walk glorify the Lord as it should? When people look at us, when they observe our walk, observe our actions, are we genuinely reflecting the character of God? How about our private conduct, which only the Lord sees? What are we like in private? Are we conducting ourselves in a godly manner in private? You need to check out our conversations, our speech, profane or impure. Do we talk about Jesus with others? Or do people only hear us talking about other things? Or even worse still, do they hear us talking in inappropriate ways? What about our communion? Are we living a growing, abiding life with Jesus? Is our spiritual life growing? Are we spiritually becoming more like the Lord? You know, if we want to see the Lord revive his work, then it has to start with us. Because in asking God to send revival, then that has to include you and I, doesn't it? Lord, send revival, just don't bother reviving me. Lord, revive everybody else, but leave me out of the equation. Well, that's never going to work. Revival has to start with individuals. You look at all the great revivals throughout history, it started with individuals who genuinely, seriously sought the Lord and God started to work with them and then it grew from there. And you and I ought to be praying as Habakkuk prayed here, Lord, revive thy work. It ought to be our prayer, our desire that God would revive his work. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. He prays that revival will be known at a definite time and place in the midst of the years. That this would not just be an idea in someone's head. This was not just a thought that Habakkuk had. This was something he wanted to see happen. He said, Lord, revive thy work, not just here, but Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years at a definite time, a definite place. May there be a definite indication that you have done the work. That it can be identified as being the work of God, that God has actually done the work Revival has taken place because God has acted. That this was just not some course of events that would happen by naturally, but this was an event that God actually intervened in a miraculous way. And then he has this interesting statement at the end of verse 2. He says, In wrath, remember mercy. And back praise, knowing that they don't deserve revival. 
So he prays for mercy. The idea is this, Lord, I know that we deserve your wrath, but in the midst of your wrath, remember mercy and send revival amongst us. That is, Lord, act for thy people as you've done and so in the past. You know, as we look around that world today, our world is ripe for God's judgment on sin and wickedness. We live in a generation that is overrun by wickedness and sin, and uh, it's amazing. In fact, our generation, our world is so sinful that even the sinful world is getting sick of its sin and identifying some things that they no longer will tolerate. It's an amazing scenario when you think that sinners have come to the place whereby they have got to the place where they won't tolerate certain forms of sin. Unfortunately, in not tolerating those sins, they're now tolerating other sins, okay? So, uh, and I think the, uh, you know, it's just getting worse. But we are in a state of affairs whereby when our world, this sinful world, starts to look upon the sin of others and starts to identify it as being wicked, then you know that we really are in a terrible state as a nation, as a world. And our world is ripe for God's judgment. It's ripe for God's uh, judgment to fall upon its wickedness. And if the Lord Jesus Christ returned today and the tribulation started tomorrow, it would be justice upon the wickedness of this world. There is no doubt about that. But you and I should not desire for judgment. You and I shouldn't desire the judgment brought upon our world. You and I should desire for mercy so that men will turn to him. As Nehemiah, uh, sorry, as Habakkuk, I don't know I've got Nehemiah in my head, mind, but as Habakkuk prays this prayer to revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, make it known in wrath, remember mercy. You and I ought to pray this same prayer. Lord, in the midst of wrath, remember mercy. We don't deserve revival. Our nation does not deserve revival. Our nation is ripe for God's judgment. There is no doubt about that. But you and I should not be praying for the judgment of God to fall. You and I would be praying for the revival of God to move. The fires of revival would move through our nation and God would show mercy in the midst of wrath. So the souls might be saved. We should pray for revival, for we need revival, and the world needs for the church to be revived. We should pray for revival, for sinners need the Savior. More than ever, people around the world need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. People are lost and dying in sin. People are on their way to a Christly eternity, separated from God in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever because they have not heard or they have not accepted Jesus Christ, their Savior. And we need to pray that God in his mercy would come forth and they would see the Lord himself in, and they would see his handiwork and they would see the Savior and they would see their need and they would be gloriously saved that they would indeed believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. God is not willing that any should perish. So you and I are not praying a prayer that God doesn't want us to pray. We're going to pray for mercy in the midst 
of wrath, just like Habakkuk did. We see the prayer of Habakkuk here. Secondly, we see the vision of the majesty of God. In verses 3 to 15, don't panic, I'm not going to spend as long in verses 3 to 15 as we just spend in verses 1 and 2. But in verses 3 to 15, we do see the majesty of God. In answer to the prophet's petition, what he receives from the Lord is a glorious revelation of God. God reveals himself to Habakkuk. The Lord doesn't give such visions today, but because it's recorded in his word, you and I can ponder the very vision that Habakkuk gets and be encouraged and challenged by it. Somebody said God reveals his greatness in creation, in scripture, and history, and if we have eyes to see it, we can behold his glory. And as you and I can contemplate the wickedness of our nation and the wickedness of our world, and as you and I are praying for revival and that God will show mercy in the midst of wrath, it does as well to remember the God that we serve. And in verses 3 to 15, Habakkuk recalls for us just how majestic our God is. We see, first of all, in his splendor. In verses 3 through 5, God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise and his brightness was as the light and his horns coming out of his hand. There was a hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence and burning coals went forth of his feet. You know, when all said and done, nothing sparks rejoicing more than remembering what God has done. That's what this table's all about. It's all about remembering what God has done. It's remembering what Christ did for us. Uh, you know, there's that song, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. There is nothing more uplifting than remembering what God has done. And so here Habakkuk remembers what God has done. As Habakkuk prays for revival, he begins to praise God. The God who brings revival. And in his song of praise, Habakkuk glorifies the power and the majesty of God. And it's good for you and I to praise God like this. Because God's people need to do more of it. In verse 3, we read about Timon. It says, <coughs> God came from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Timon and Mount Paran are named probably as the two, because they're the two most um, extreme boundaries or the opposite boundaries of the wilderness wanderings, the journeys of Israel in the wilderness, in the desert. And Timon is identified in other places as Edom, which is the southernmost boundary where the Jews wandered in the wilderness. And Mount Paran is the northernmost boundary of where they wandered in the wilderness. And so uh, here he's talking about what God did for the nation of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. Israel is leaving Egypt and entering into the promised land. And everything about this stanza reveals the God of glory. He calls him in verse 3, the Holy One. He says, the Holy One from Mount Paran. A name that's used in Isaiah at least 30 times to describe God. He's the Holy One. 
tells us here that he, his glory covered the heavens in verse 3. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Here is a, an anticipation of a time when all the, his glory will cover all the earth. God's appearance was like lightning and plays across the heavens before like a storm breaks out. It says there, and the earth was full of praise and his brightness was of the light. All of creation joined in praising him. The earth is full of his praise. God's brightness was like the sunshine, only to a great degree. Jewish interpreters understand the word horns in verse 4. And his brightness was as the light of his horns coming out of his hands. And there was a hiding of his power. Uh, understand the word horns to carry the idea of ray. Uh, one commentator puts it this way, John, uh, Jewish commentator says, Moses having horns or beams of light and glory from his hand and power of God when he conversed with him on the mount and the skin of his face shone. And the word shone in that account is the same Hebrew word as translated here, horn. And so the idea is that God's shining forth in brightness, it's, it's billowing forth from him. It, it's, it's going out from him. It's like, like if you blew a horn and you could hear the, the sound waves vibrate. The, the, the light is coming forth from God and it's like the light is vibrating. It's like the, the sound waves are going forth. But in this case, it's the light is emanating from Almighty God. His glory is shining forth. In verse 5, we're taken to Egypt. It says before him, where the pestilence and burning coals went forth at his feet where God revealed his power and the glory of the plagues and the pestilence that devastated the Egyptians and took care of uh, securing the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, a place whereby the firstborn died. And this verse might also include the various judgment God sent to Israel when they disobeyed him from time to time during the wilderness wanderings. In Old Testament times, God often revealed his glory through such judgments. And in all of this, we see the majesty and the splendor of God. Today, God reveals his glory through his Son. Isn't that what he says in John 1, 14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten the Father, full of grace and truth. And when you and I behold the glory of God, it ought to move you and I to give thanks unto God. It ought to move us to praise him, even in the midst of this wicked generation. The Lord stood in power in the next stanza, verses 6 and 7. It says, He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nation. The everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. You know, invading generals either push forward to gain ground or they fall back and retreat. But it says here that the Lord simply stood and faced the enemy unafraid. He stood, it says. That's the power of God. When it came to the nation of Israel, God just stood for them in the face of the enemy. In fact, he calmly measured the earth as a sign that he possessed it. To measure something is an indication that it's yours and you can do with it as you please. 
And that's exactly what God did here. He measured the earth. It's his. It's a preliminary step to action as though the Lord was surveying the situation and estimating how much power it would take to execute his wrath and victory for the nation. The Lord reveals his power when he shook the earth at Sinai before he delivered the law to Israel in verse 6. So he drove us some of the nations and the everlasting mountain was scattered and the perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. Also, I find that the driving out of those nations demonstrates his power. The nation that lay between Egypt and Canaan are typified by Cushan in verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. These two peoples living near Edom, Cushan and Midian. As the news of the exodus from Egypt spreads across the other nations to other peoples, they become to be terrified by the nation of Israel as God's power is demonstrated in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt through the ten plagues, the deliverance of them to the Red Sea, God then opening up the Red Sea, the nation going through on dry ground, the sea then coming in on top of the Egyptian army. What you find is the nations that lie ahead of them now begin to fear and tremble at the sight of the power of Almighty God. They wondered what would happen to them when Israel arrived on the scene. And all of this reveals God's power. Beloved, we have a mighty, all-powerful God. And as you and I meditate upon the power of God, our voices ought to be lifted up in praise and our knees ought to be bowed in reverence before him. Then we see God marched in victory in verse 8 through 15. It says in verse 8, Was the Lord displeased against the river? Rivers was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea? Thou didst ride upon the horses and thy chariots of salvation. Habakkuk was used dramatic poet, poetic imagery here to describe Israel's march through the wilderness as they followed the Lord of the promised land. The Red Sea opened up and let the uh, Israel out of Egypt and the Jordan opened up to lead Israel into the land of Canaan. The Egyptian chariots sank in the mud. Their occupants were drowned, but God's chariots were chariots of salvation, which is what he says in verse 8. He says, Was the wrath against the sea? That is, ride upon thine horses and thy chariots of salvation. In verse 9, we have a picture of the various battles that Israel's fought en route to Canaan, battles that the Lord won for them. As they trusted him and obeyed him, the bow was made quite naked according to the oaths of the tribes. Every, even thy word, thou didst cleave the earth with rivers. In verse 10, we moved into the promised land and Israel conquering the enemy. God was in complete control of the land and the water and he used his creation to defeat the Canaanites. The mountains saw thee and they trembled and the overflowing of the waters passed by and the deep uttered his voice and lifted up his hands on high. Verse 10, 10 describes for us the victory of Deborah and Barak over Caesarea, a time when a sudden rainstorm turned the battlefield into a swamp and left the empty chariots completely useless. In verse 11, we have the story of Joshua, that is, my, uh, uh, the sun and the moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of thine arrows they went, and at the signing 
shining of the glittering spear. Here's the famous story when the sun stood still so that Joshua could finish the battle. God prolonged the day so that he had more time to win the total victory. Leading his army, God marched through Canaan like a farmer threshing grain. And his people claimed their inheritance in verse 12. They just marched through the land in indignation. They just threshed the heathen in anger. And then we come to verses 13 and 15, and the expositors can't agree on what the historical significance or what the historical events are described in these verses. They went as forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. They wounded the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation upon the neck. They did strike through with their staves the head of the, his villagers. They came out of the whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was to devour the poor secretly. They just walked through the sea with thine horses through the heap of great waters. Perhaps the prophet is referring to the various times that God delivered his people, as recorded in the book of Judges. In that case, the anointed one mentioned here would be the judges that he raised up to deliver the people over and over again. However, perhaps Habakkuk was looking ahead and describing the deliverance of the people from the captivity in Babylon. Perhaps he's looking back to some events that have happened with deliverance from Egypt and deliverance through the Jordan. Perhaps it was all of these. As I said, a recommendator after commentator, none of them could agree on what they thought these verses were directly relating to. But the point here is this. He is a living God who makes the dead idols of the nations around them look ridiculous. You see, Habakkuk here has been questioning why God's not doing anything, why God's not judging wickedness. He's questioning why God's using an even more wicked nation to judge a less wicked nation. And as he gets his answer and as he realizes just what God is doing, and at the end of verse chapter 2 we read, but the Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth keeps silence before him, he realizes that God is still on the throne. And then he embarks in chapter 3 upon this prayer where he cries out to God for revival. And as he thinks about God reviving the work in the midst of the years and asking God to temper that, his wrath with mercy, he then starts to contemplate how great his God is. And he starts to recount the history of Israel from the deliverance from Egypt through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and the wilderness wanderings, and the various victories into the promised land and the victory of Joshua and all that God has done and now the, the time where they're going to go into captivity and God's promise that he will deliver them one day from Babylon in captivity. Babylon will be destroyed. He can't help himself but to praise his God. He is the God of power who can command the land and the sea, the heaven and the earth, Therefore, he's the God of victory, leads his people in triumph. And beloved, he's our God. The wonderful thing about this is we're not reading about a God that belongs to Israel. We're talking about the God who is our God. It's the same God who's on the throne. He's still in his holy temple. He still rules from glory. He still is in control. And no matter how wicked the world may become, and no matter how it seems like uh, all things are lost, God is still on 
the throne. And he's still all-powerful. He's still all-glorious. He is still all-majestic. He is a mighty, glorious, splendid, spectacular, wonderful God. And we can just praise him and thank him. And he's the God of our salvation. It says in verse 13, that went us forth for the salvation of thy people, even for salvation with thine anointed. He is our salvation. He is our salvation. And when it comes to praising God and causing God's people to lift their voice of praise, there is no substitute for good theology. Now, theology ought to cause us to praise. When you and I hear about God, it ought to cause us to get excited. When we, when we hear about his majesty and his glory, when we hear about the victories that he, he has won in the past, when you and I hear about, about God upon his throne, when we hear uh, passages like this, it ought to cause you and I to get excited about our God because there is nothing like good theology for causing you and I to praise him. Whether it's in sermons we preach or the songs that we sing, it ought to be full of theology. And here is Habakkuk's testimonial theological lesson that caused him to praise. It's amazing, isn't it? For two chapters, he's been despondent. For two chapters, he's been at the wit's end, knowing what's going on. And for two chapters, it's like he's talking on our behalf. How long, O Lord? And then he says, well, listen, in the midst of all of that, just remember... How great God is. You know, the shallowness of some contemporary sermons and books and songs may be the major contributing factor to the weakness of the church today. It's also related to the increase of religious entertainment in meetings where there ought to be praising God. See, the thing that lifted Habakkuk to the mountain was his understanding of the greatness of God. And the thing that will lift you and I to the mountain and the place whereby you and I feel secure is that you and I understand the greatness of our God. We need to return to that kind of worship that focuses on the glory of God and seeks to honor him and him alone. I praise God for the old hymns that we sing. You know, they uplift our God. We sang just before the message, revive us again which reminds us of Habakkuk here. Lord, revive us. A vision of the majesty of God will revive our hearts. It will move us to praise and to serve him. Like Habakkuk, we need to renew our vision of God. We need a revival of our hearts. I trust today we'll pray, lift up our voices in prayer and praise. Asking God to revive us again and give us a renewed vision of the majesty and the glory and the power of our God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you for this wonderful recollection of the greatness of God. And Lord, we probably haven't done justice to these 15 verses. But certainly, Lord, the events described in the 15 verses in and of themselves could have been a sermon themselves. Father God, we do thank you that you are a great and mighty God. 
that you are in your holy temple, that you're still upon the throne. And we would pray, Lord God, revive thy work. And in the midst of wrath, show mercy. Lord, may we get a vision of your glory, a vision of your majesty, a vision of your splendor, a vision of your power, that we might be revived and the work of God might be done. Sinners might hear of the Savior and souls might be saved. Lord, challenges by your word today. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 166 in closing. 166.